Last Sunday, we began our identity series, and, and you'll remember that, that it's really themed around three things, grow, serve, and go. And so we made it through our grow component, this idea that, that God is, is moving and working in our lives, that He is changing us, and, and there's no, no static position that we attain to in the Christian life. It's not that, well, are you a level three Christian or a level four Christian? Oh, you, I'm, I'm a level two and a half, I'm working on my third star, and eventually I'll be there, maybe by the end of this week. Somebody says, well, that's, that's fantastic, good for you. See, there's, there's no grading of levels in the Christian life, but it's this understanding that we move closer and closer and closer to the heart of God. We're being daily transformed and changed. So growth is a massive component of what it is to be a Christian. The idea that we should all be growing is central to our understanding of what it is to be a member at Ridgecrest Baptist Church. You've got to be growing in your faith. Today we move and we look at the second component of that, and it's this idea of, of service. That, that God gives us over and over again a call to join Him in service. That as we studied the book of James together, what we saw over and over and over again was James writing and saying, look, you need to be doing something because of who you are. You need to be doing something as a result of the change that God has effected in you. Now, when we think of, of service practically on, on a personal level, you start at kind of a high level, right? And so you think, if somebody were to ask you, well, who do you know that is kind of a servant par excellence? Who have you seen do well in service? And some of you might say, oh, man, I think of, I think of Mother Teresa. That's absolutely right. I mean, she lived in the slums of Calcutta. She was really working away and giving her life to minister to the needs of those people there. And you say, man, that's, that's where I set the bar. That's what I think of when I think of somebody that has served and served well. Or maybe, you, you know, you bring it down and you think, oh, man, I've got a, a father or I've got a mother who has cared for their spouse who for years has given themselves to the dutiful care and provision of their spouse. We have many men and, and women in this church that meet that description. We have people in this church that have given years of their life to caring for a spouse who can't return and say thank you, who, who just lay there and are solely dependent upon them, they give a beautiful portrait of service. But all of those portraits, all of these things become mere caricatures when we look at the service that Christ renders. Today we're going to be studying in John 13 and keying in on the example of service that Jesus gives us and the call to service that he extends to us as individual members of this church and to, a, and to us as members of the larger body. All Christians are called to service. Now Justin read a portion of this passage earlier and we're going to work through chapter 13 verses 1 through 17. Now when we open up this passage, what we read in verse 1 is that the feast of the Passover has come. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. We see a, a, an amazing picture of Jesus in this. Jesus knew that his hour has come. John's making a reference that the, the, the crucifixion did not catch Jesus off guard. It's not as if he's living his three years of ministry, bebopping along, building up crowds and you know, dispersing the crowds when his teaching gets hard as it did in John 6. It's not that he's going and he's doing this and traveling in these circles and then, boom, he shows up and people are angry and they crucify him and he thinks, 
oh man, I was, I was following the plan. I, let's see, born, got that, okay, traveled around, healed, blind, got blind people, I've got lepers, I, I, I did the walking on water part, and, and, but they want to crucify me now? It's not that that caught him off guard. He saw this coming the whole time. And the point John is making that even in the hours preceding his death, he did not go off mission. He stayed the course. And he is giving the disciples another lesson in what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And looking at his disciples, the text tells us that he loved them. He loved the disciples. He loved these, these ragtag group of men that, that were following him around, that were giving their lives to him. Now we look at that and we say, oh man, what is, what is not to love about Matthew? I mean, tax collector turned Christian? I mean, what's not to love about him? What's not to love about Thomas? I mean, this guy who, who was so gung-ho, this guy who said, look, if Jesus is going to go back and die, let's go back with him. What's not to love about Peter? I mean, everybody can associate with Peter. The guy spent half his ministry with his foot in his mouth. And Jesus is saying, Pete, I love the energy. Let's redirect. Let's redirect. But what's to love about Judas? I mean, we read the Gospels over and over again. And, and in Mark and in John, it'll say Judas. And then in parentheses, it says, you know, the one who would betray him. John talks about Judas in, in, in I believe it's in chapter 11, he says that when something was done, Judas got angry over the way that money was spent. And then in parentheses, he says, not because he cared about the poor, because he liked money. I mean, what's there to love about Judas? But the text tells us that Jesus loved all of the disciples, and he loved them to the end. He loved them unto his death. Man, how difficult is that for I mean, there, there are people that we are related to that, that love would be way too far, and like is a daily chore for us. Some of you, as you, as you think about your spouse, you're like, oh, today is not a love day. Today is a tolerate day. All I said was, would you take care of the kids for five minutes? You know, it's this idea that we are called to love those, and Jesus gives us a beautiful example, even the one he knew would betray him. Even the, new, even the one he knew who would turn his back on Jesus and in fact had already done it. We see in verse 2 it says, During the supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. This is the context. This is where Jesus finds himself. Judas had already made an arrangement with the, with the Jews. Judas had already betrayed Christ in his heart and was getting ready to do it indeed. But Jesus loved him still. Now, as we, as we look at this passage, one of the things that really muddies up our mind is when, when you think of the Last Supper, what image is in your mind? I mean, it's, it's da Vinci's painting, right? And so you see this, this monstrous table, you see people laying over and laps and, and, you know, and all looking down the table, you know, mm-hmm, yeah, that's good, or da Vinci, you got this? Okay, oh man, my back was, that was like 30 minutes not moving. And so it's this idea that this is the portrait, this is the thing that is stuck in our minds, and that's the thing you think about when you think of the Lord's Supper. But, but allow this image to make it into your minds. They are laying on the floor, feet out. And so there's, there's a table that they're all gathered around, and they're leaning on their left elbows, most likely, feet out, 
and they're moving around the table. Okay, everybody see that now. And so Da Vinci, great portrait, love it. Wish I had it on my wall. That's not, that's not what we see here. These men are laying down, they're propped up, and their feet are facing out from around the table. And, and in verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. Man, this is an amazing thing. You see that we come into this passage, it's not only did Jesus know Simon, or that, Simon, that Judas, excuse me, would betray him. Not only did he know that he would be crucified, but he knew that he had the power to stop it. So it's not only that he saw this bad thing coming towards him, but he had the, the awareness to realize that God had given all things into his hand. That at any moment, Jesus could have spoken up and said, you know what, this was a great plan, but plan B could be a good thing too. Let's give it a shot. Let's give the non-crucifixion path a shot. You see, he saw all of these things coming, but he still pursued the cross. And knowing these things, having this, these thoughts run through his mind. Man, I know it's, it's difficult for me when I have multiple thoughts moving through my mind to, to stay on task. I, I, in some ways, I suffer from a, from a type of adult ADD where I see somebody stand up in the back. I see something flash, and I think, somebody take my picture? Why are they taking my picture? Are they going to put that on Facebook? I don't know. I have my friends with them on Facebook. Maybe when I get home a little later, I'll check it. And then I think, oh, no, I'm preaching. i got to get it back to this. Man, it's just, it's difficult to stay on task. But Jesus, knowing all of these things, knowing, knowing that salvation rests in his actions as the person of God, stays the course. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't get discouraged. He stays the course. And the text tells us that he rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a, a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus does something that just completely destroys their understanding of what it is to serve. Jesus does something that completely alters their conception of what service is. You see, we, we read Simon Peter's response to Jesus, and, and what we think about is, man, he's getting it wrong again. Why can't you just let Jesus be Jesus and then answer after he does the really cool thing? Because you're going to get it in a moment, Simon Peter. Just, just don't be so quick to say something. And that's, that's where we look at this passage, and that's really where our minds go. But you see, they're operating from a completely different cultural understanding. They're operating from a, from a completely different cultural understanding than we have. To where if I were to go to Larry and say, Larry, let me wash your feet. He'd say, well, it's, you know, in front of all these people, really, you want to wash my feet? And I'd say, well, you know, not really, but I, I've, I've got to do this thing, so would you let me wash your feet? And everybody's generally interested, but nobody is, finds himself in deep revulsion. You know, when Jesus... When Jesus takes off his outer garment, when he grabs the towel, wraps it around his waist, Jesus is assuming the outfit, Jesus is assuming the uniform of the most menial, the most lowliest servant that existed in their culture, existed in their times. Jesus dons this, this janitorial outfit. Jesus dons this outfit that when he puts it on, everybody says, what, what's, what's, what's Jesus doing? 
he's violating their understanding of social order. He's violating their understanding of what it is to be a leader and what it is to be a follower. You see, for, for Jews and for Gentiles alike, they, they thought the person that washed their feet was the lowest in the social pecking order. Jews, in fact, believed that, that you couldn't command another Jew to wash your feet. That if you had a Jewish slave, that you should never use them for washing your feet. And it's not because they f- thought feet were just so disgusting and, and bunion and wart and all this cover, but it violated everything about their understanding of social order. So when Jesus works his way around the table, when Jesus goes over and, and he picks up the foot of one of the disciples and he, he's pouring water out of the pitcher and into the basin, and he's taking the towel and he's, he's wiping it clean, He's destroying their understanding of service. So it only makes sense that when he comes to Simon Peter, Peter's response is, Lord, what? Jesus, are you going to wash my feet? Look, I've I've seen you do other people's feet, but are you going to wash my feet? Because it was violating Peter's understanding of Jesus' placement and Peter's placement. Jesus' response to him. He says, what I'm doing now, you do not understand. But afterward, you will understand. See, Jesus isn't making a reference to the fact that, look, Pete, when I get done washing your feet, you're going to feel refreshed, you're going to feel renewed, and all of this is going to make sense to you. He's not saying, look, Peter, look, I, I, I was an understudy at a school of, of, you know, the people that work on feet and do pedicures for three months. You didn't know that about me, but I'm about to change your life in a whole new way. Instead, he's, he's drawing again in a reference to the crucifixion and to the resurrection and saying, Peter, all of these things are going to fall in place. All of these things are going to fall in place to you and you're going to understand the deeper significance of what I do. Peter hears that. He takes some time to consider Jesus' word that, that he wouldn't understand now, but he would later come to fully understand. And Peter gives the apt response, no. Jesus has just told him, look, Pete, you're not going to understand. Peter says, pause, one, two, three. Never. Jesus, you're never going to wash my feet. And the construction that Peter uses there isn't just to say, look, Jesus, I'd rather not. I mean, you told me to look out for the cow. I didn't see it. You know I've got open-toed sandals. And I I did this number, and it's it's, it's bad down there. It's not a good thing. You don't want to go there. I'm just saying it's good our feet are this way, away from the table. It's not that he went there. In fact, he tells Jesus, you will never do this, never, ever, ever, not going to happen as long as I live. The construction he uses in the Greek lets us know that Peter thought this was an impossibility. It's not going to happen for Peter. Jesus, you can never do this for me. See, because what Peter understood was because Jesus was the leader, Jesus was the one they followed, that Peter was not worthy to have Jesus clean his feet. How does Jesus respond to him? You can imagine Jesus has had a number of encounters with Peter, helping him pull his foot back out of his mouth. And by this point, he turns to him, he says, look, Pete, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I don't wash you, you've got no share with me. Now, we can tell by this that Jesus is obviously referring to something much different 
much more important than just having your feet washed. But Peter, again, it just, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it. Jesus' word to Peter that he wouldn't understand, but later he would is, is readily apparent to us. Peter says in verse 9, Lord, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and head. Peter says, look, if, 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 the, if the feet are good, if you say that I can't be a part of you, if you don't wash them, then you know what, let's just do it here. I've got a bottle of Dove. I've got a loofah. We'll just get this thing going right now. Wash me from head to toe. Jesus is like, oh man, you just give you an inch and you go a mile. Pete. Jesus is trying to drive at the point for Peter that he's not talking about bodily cleansing. He says, Peter, look, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but he is completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you, for he knew the one who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. See, Peter's understanding was that if he could be more identified with Jesus with feet cleaning, that a whole bodily cleansing would really take him to the next level. A whole bodily cleansing would really take him to the next level. And Jesus, again, not talking about bodily cleansing. He says, look, I know that all of you are clean. I know that, that, that you guys have been set apart under the service of God, that you guys will be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but not all of you are clean. Jesus recognizes, he's making a reference again to the fact that Judas will betray Jesus. That Judas, in fact, has already moved to betray him. Jesus also recognizes that as we encounter things in this life, that if you are sitting here today and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you, then you are clean. Then you're clean. But just as there's a deeper meaning for the disciples when Jesus says, look, you don't need to have your body washed again, but you need to have your feet washed again, we recognize that as we encounter our society, that as you go to work, as you watch television, as you hang out with, with your non-Christian friends, as you do all of these things, this, the mud from this world which clung to the disciples' feet, it clings to every part of us. We need to have this renewed expression of faith. Not that you're being saved again, but you're recognizing the detrimental effect of sin in your life. And you're asking God to make that more and more repugnant to you. More and more vile to you. That you would see sin the way God sees sin. That when we encounter sin, when we see things that are, that are crass, when we see things that are crude, that they wouldn't immediately respond in us in laughter but they would respond in us instead as revulsion. We need to have an understanding that even though God has cleaned us, that we are repeatedly going out into this world and suffering a decay of morality and suffering a decay in an understanding of what is holy and what is not. We need to return again to this understanding that we need the power of God moving in our lives to understand this. Moving to verse 12, he says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place to them, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? Jesus goes around and he washes the feet of all of them. He finishes washing Peter's feet, sets aside the basin, sets aside the pitcher, puts back on his outer garments. He goes back down, he lays down, and he turns to all the disciples. 
And he asked them this question. He says, do you understand what I have done to you? See, Jesus could ask us this exact same question today. That if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, do you understand what he has done to you? Do you understand the change that he has effected inside you? Do you understand what he has done to you? Let us now turn and, and, and give our, our, our thoughts and our attentions towards uncovering what Jesus is calling us to as a result of what he has done in us. This idea that because he has saved us, he has called us into his service. And it's not our place to say, you know, God, I'm, I'm not really about that. Thank you so much for saving me, but I'd really just rather keep this other portion of my life on hold. You see, if he has saved you, he has saved you entirely. If he has saved you, he owns you entirely. He is your Lord, he is your king, and your role in this is to do those things which he commands. And he calls us into service. We see this in Jesus' half-brother James. James writing and discussing this subject of service and the role of faith that plays a role in our lives says this in James 2, 14 through 17. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but not, does not have works? He asks this question. He says, Can that faith, can this faith that, that doesn't have any type of fruit, doesn't have any type of representation, save him? Going on, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but doesn't give them the things they need for the body, man, what good is that? He sets up this example. He says, look, if you see a poor person, you see somebody whose life you can change, and, and, and they come up to you and say, look, I, I, I need help, I need this, I need that, and you're thinking, oh, I got like five of those at home. Look, let me pray for you. You go and have a better day, dear person. Your name again. You see, all that reveals in us is that our faith is shallow. Our faith is a shell. That it has no change, no substantive change in our life. Then James gives this summation of that in verse 17. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We can't merely intellectualize Christianity. We can't merely intellectualize and to understand this on an intellectual level. There's a faith component which demands sacrifice on our part. You see, over and over again we see displayed this idea that we are not to serve from a position of comfort. It's not that we just do those things when somebody says, Hey, look, I need your help over here and do, <clears throat> in doing this. And you say... That's really got me out of my comfort zone. Surely there's somebody else that's more gifted to do this for you. I mean, that's, that's always the thing, isn't it? That let me, help, let me help you find somebody that's even better at this than you've heard that I am. They're out there somewhere. We just need to pray that they would show up. And, and, and until they do, you'll be okay on your own because God, is, His grace is sufficient for your need. And, and a lot of other things I've heard the Bible say about people that have needs. Does that make you feel better, friend? It's this idea that our faith calls us into action. And it calls us to sacrificially give of ourselves in service to God. We read in Ephesians 2. See that at our, at our very core and in, in who we are and what God has called us to be. That he has called us to be those who would serve. Ephesians 2.10 
Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says, for we are his workmanship. God made us. God built us. He designed us. That we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? Paul expressly says here that you are created for good works. And these good works that you're designed for, these, these modes of service and this moving and this doing, this is the great thing. That God has prepared these things ahead of time for you to do. That we should walk in them. See, God didn't just save you. It's not just that he walked into your life, that he separated sin, that he interjected holiness into who you are, but he also came along and he said, look, when I save Larry, when I move in, 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 in all these people's lives, when I move in one individual's life, I'm going to set aside things for them to do. That he creates us for the purpose of good works. Man, that's central to your DNA of what it is to be a Christian. You recognize that to be a Christian and not have works doesn't make sense. To be a Christian and not be involved with service doesn't make sense. That to be a church that doesn't have a a, a reflection of service, that that if service is not at the core of what it is to be a member of this church, that that doesn't make sense. We might as well be a community club. We might as well be a community club if we're not called as a body with a corporate response for service. We see Paul writing again in the pastoral epistles in, in Titus 2 and verse 14. That he gives another characteristic of what it is to serve God. Speaking of Jesus, he says that it is Jesus himself that was given to redeem us from all lawlessness. There's that component that there's sin evident in our lives and Jesus was given to redeem us from lawlessness. To give him to purify himself of people for his own possession. That Jesus is working in our lives that we are purified, that we are reckoned holy in salvation. But that he is revealing those things into us where sin clings on. He is revealing in us those areas of our life that we have yet to surrender to him. Those areas of our life that we have yet to turn over in open-handed submission to him. That he's creating creating in us a pure possession for himself. And who are these people? Titus 2.14 tells us that these people, they are zealous for good works. They are zealous for good works. They desire to do those things which cause them sacrifice for God. They recognize that in salvation, God has called them into relationship, but in salvation, He has set aside good works for them, and in salvation, we are to be zealous We are to long to do things for Jesus. We are to long to do things that he might be glorified in our doing. And what are you doing for Jesus? Not because you feel guilty, not because you think it's going to add to your salvation, but what are you doing for Jesus? Because he has saved you. Because you're so grateful that in salvation that he radically transformed everything about you. That in salvation he radically altered your eternal destiny. What are you doing for Jesus? You know, one of the most difficult things for us, that as we sit here in our Western context, and one of the ways that you can often tell where somebody is at in terms of spiritual maturity is what are you giving for Jesus? 
mean, some of us don't, don't highly value our time, and other, others of us do, but when we turn to the idea of money, everybody checks their wallet to make sure they haven't been lifted at the door. Everybody just thinks, you know, the pastor says money, everybody's like, man, I'm glad I didn't bring my wallet today. That's about to be rough, but I've got a week to forget about it. It's this idea that, that Jesus, when he saved you, he demands your service, and God owns everything. You can look at the Psalms, and the Bible tells us that a cat, the cattle of a thousand hills are God's, that every penny in your bank account, whether you recognize it or not, belongs to God. You see, God gives you food, He provides for you, He gives you the air to breathe. You say, Look, I don't need God. Try breathing with no oxygen. I don't, I don't need God. Try working with no energy. I don't, I don't need God. Try doing that without your heart continually pump, pumping blood. See, God owns everything. We give back to Him as a response and in, an indication of that. You see, there's, there's two perspectives broadly on money. The world's perspective is controlled and mechanical. The godly perspective is spontaneous and free. See, even in giving of your tithes and your offerings, this worldly perspective can make it in there and can so pervert and, and rob this thing of any beauty. Where you say, look, I have a strong conviction that I need to tithe off of my net income. And so I'm going to do that. Man, I'm not even going to you know, subtract out the time I give to the church, which I bill at $150 an hour. I'm not even going to subtract out you know, the, the gas that I get there. I'm not going to take a mileage credit. I've got to buy church clothes. I'm not going to subtract those things out of there. I'm not even going to subtract out the time I took the youth pastor to lunch. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to subtract out the time I took the youth pastor to lunch. That was not enjoyable. <laughs> okay, I feel guilty. I'm going to give it back again. You see, it's, it's not that you, that you look at it and, and in your heart, your desire was just to give that 10%. You see, but in giving that, our hearts can be so jaded, our hearts can be so corrupted that we look at that and we scientifically look at it and we're evaluating tax brackets and we're looking at how we can move this thing around and, oh, it's, you know, here comes December time, man, I don't want to have the taxable liability of that. And you, let me find five or six really good nonprofits that I can give some money to. Oh, wait, I belong to one, I can give it to them. See, if your heart motivation in giving, it doesn't matter how much you give, if your heart motivation is, is moving in a response to set yourself up the best you can financially? Friend, there is no benefit in that. Friend, there is no benefit in that. You see, we see that God calls us to be like the widow in Luke 21. In Luke 21, Jesus goes in and he sees the rich people and they're, just, they're backing up the money truck and they're dumping it in the offering. And, and they're doing that, and it's just overflowing. And then you've got this, this poor woman in the shadows that comes over there, and she's got these two worthless coins. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost, to us, it'd be like somebody dropping pennies in the offering plate. It's almost more of a nuisance to count than anything. She drops them in there. And the rich people sit back, puffed out chest, and they say, count it, it's all there. See, Jesus recognizes that this woman gave of even those things that she needed to survive, that Jesus recognizes in this woman sacrificial giving. 
that wasn't, wasn't done in an effort to puff herself up, wasn't given out of her abundance, but was given out of even those things that she needed to have to survive. Moving on, we see in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, that Paul writing about those who gave to the churches in Macedonia. In chapter 8, we, say, we see that they gave, this, this blows my mind, they gave out of their extreme poverty. I mean, they weren't, they weren't sitting back counting all the extra money they had. They were extremely poor. They were broke. In our understanding, they were, they were fully leveraged. They were in debt. They didn't have money in a savings account. They didn't understand that. They were subsistence living. But they gave in their extreme poverty. But this is what Paul tells us about them. He says, that, but that overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That they were suffering affliction, that they were broke, that they didn't have two pennies to rub together, but their giving was such an extreme display of generosity that it blew everybody away. In fact, Paul has this dialogue with them in chapter 8. He says, look, look, you guys are broke. You don't need to give anything. And they say, please, Paul, we want to. Paul writes in verse 3, he says, For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for an opportunity to give. Do you see the heart difference in that? It's just not mechanical. It's just this understanding that God has entrusted with us so much. And by the worldly perspective, we are all wealthy. And we can affect tremendous change. If we would buy into this heart that Paul further describes in 2 Corinthians 9. If we would be joyful givers. See, and I'm not going to tell you that, that if you give to the point where it hurts, that God will return and he will overflow your bank accounts. Because I would be lying to you. I would be, be leading you in something that people have said over and over and over again. But friend, if you give to the point that God leads you and you rejoice in that, the text tells us in 2 Corinthians 9 that he will make grace abound to you. That he will continue to fill you, that you will see such tremendous joy and release in not being owned and not worshiping the idol of money. But not so that you can get stuff back. See, we don't give so that we can get stuff back. We give because we recognize that God has already given us the one thing for which we could never, never repay. We give as an indication of our submission to Jesus. See, for us, as we look at this and we understand that God has called us into radical service, to be it time, be it money, be it your advice and, and you offer to come in and sit with people and counsel, be it anything, that we give all of these things back, that we serve with every fiber of our being, that our corporate response is one of service, that people look at our church and recognize it as one that is a serving church. Friends, we should have so many people desiring and calling the office and asking about positions of service that we just run out of opportunity. That when, when the nursery director calls and says, look, I need five people to serve in the nursery, we say, look, we've got 50. It's going to take us at least a week to run through these people's names. That when 
when we have people call the church and say, look, I want to serve. My whole family wants to serve. You know what our response should be? It should be, look, we don't have anything left. Every position is filled. Everything is met. Look, we've already cleaned the carpets three times this morning. It can't hold it. There's no more carpet cleaning. Except for in the pastor's office. But only there one more time. I have a four-year-old. It's this idea that that God is calling us into radical service. We should be able to call. We should have to call the other places in town. We should have to call the Rafa Clinic and say, look, we've got 50 people we can't use. How can you use them to serve? We should call Hands of Compassion and say, look, we have 100 people that we can't use. How can you use them to serve? We should call the other churches in town and say, look, we're overrun with servers. Look, we, we, we were overrun with people to serve. We can't utilize them, but they want to give their time. They want to give their resources. They want to dedicate their lives to glorifying God. Do you have something they can do? That should be our heartbeat. That should be our problem. Because God gives us such a, a radical call to service. And Jesus has has already violated for the apostles their understanding of what it is to serve God. He turns and he serves them, and he does something which shames them. See, we read in the other accounts of the Passover that the disciples entered into this discussion and this disagreement about who was greatest. I mean, who did, who did Jesus love the most? Who was the greatest? Who would do the most for the for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And Jesus turns around and he strips off and he, he takes on the uniform of the most lowly servant. He does something that nobody else would do. He washes their feet. He displays for them this amazing mode of service. Coming back into John 13. Jesus is just asking me, he says, do you understand what I've done to you? Turning to the disciples, he says in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. See, Jesus had completely destroyed their understanding of social order. He washed their feet, and he says, Look, how do you guys see me? You see me as teacher and Lord? They all nod. He says, You're absolutely right. I'm your Lord, and I'm your teacher. If you reverence my position in your life, then you need to do exactly as I have done. You need to find yourself involved in service that costs you something. You need to find yourself involved in sacrificial, surprising service that you would go out into your communities and do things that would absolutely destroy people's understanding of what Christians do. That you would find yourself destroying their concept of what it is to be a a privileged person. You say, look, my privilege only extends from the gospel, and every facet of my life is in submission to that, and I serve you because my Lord is a serving God. I serve you because Jesus served me. That Jesus gave himself for me. Jesus going on says in verse 15, he says, I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is leading the disciples in an understanding. He says, look, I am greater than you. 
And I bowed myself down low. I assumed this role that you thought unapproachable. I, I, I committed to this act of service that you thought was so far beneath me. And if, friend, if that, is not belie- if that is not beneath Jesus, there is nothing beneath us. There is nothing beneath us. We should be lined up to do the most lowly, the most humiliating, the, the most demanding form of service. Because Jesus is our Lord. He is our teacher. We are His servants. And if we recognize the, the role that Jesus played, that as the crucifixion weighed heavy on His mind, that He saw fit to give the, give the disciples one more display of sacrificial service. So the question that Jesus puts forward to us again today is, if you know these things, are you doing them? That as we have heard the word of God, that as we have seen these things go forward, that as we have seen Jesus lay down the gauntlet for service, how are we responding? So we should be a serving church. We should be a giving church church. We should be a church that serves with every facet of our membership. Every member, every member should be serving in some way. Because we serve as a response of what God has done for us. For those of you who have already accepted the gift of salvation in Jesus, You recognize your life is not your own. That Jesus lays down for you this display of service that he calls you to follow in like manner. But maybe as you sit here today, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've heard a lot of intellectual things about him. You've attended church. Friend, for you, we recognize that as Paul writes in Philippians 2, that Jesus emptied himself of everything. That he assumed the role not of somebody who would come in and and, and take charge and authority over the governmental structure of his day, but somebody that would come in in the form of a servant. And that the way Jesus has has served you and the way that he extends an offer to you is an offer for the forgiveness of sins. See that as we live our lives, we recognize that there is nothing we can do to be perfect. But God sent his son to be perfection. And that as we've fallen short, living up to the perfect standard which God demands, that God's justice demands that there must be punishment for sin. And that Jesus, even as he sat around the table with the disciples, realized that he himself would suffer the wrath of God. That he would stand in the gap and receive the wrath of God poured out on him so that you might be saved. Jesus died, and in three days he rose again, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he beckons to all, come, receive my gift of sacrifice. Let me pray for us.